Science Shorts. I'm your host, Byron Pace. This is a series brought to you by the Into the Wilderness podcast and supported by Modern Huntsman. We delve into the science behind conservation, pulling in experts from around the world to talk on topics ranging from how mercury gets into our ocean to the impacts of sea otter populations returning to the coastline of British Columbia. From scientists to policymakers, oceans to deserts, we want to uncover the complexities of conservation and present a better understanding of the intersection between humans and the environment we all share with the living creatures of this planet. In this episode, I talk with Jess Johnson about the recent headlines seen around the world about legislative change in Alaska, which would allow for the hunting of bear cubs and wolf pups in dens. This was obviously met by a widespread outcry against the move. However, as we always try to do on this podcast, I was keen to take a step back and pause for a moment and really understand what had happened here. So the same day that the news broke, I called Jess to get more information, which sent her down a rabbit warren for an entire week. Now, normally I would cut these shows down and insert some concise summaries, But Jess does such a great job with this, I've left the show as recorded the full 30 minutes on the topic. Jess is the legislative liaison and advocacy coordinator at the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, and she also sits on the board for directors for 2% for conservation. She is my go-to person for policy implications to wildlife in North America, and I am really pleased to have her back on the show. If you want to support these shows, head over to patreon.com forward slash pacebrothers. And if you want to get your hands on the traditions volume of Modern Huntsman, head over to modernhuntsman.com. Jesse, welcome back to the Into the Wilderness podcast and our science shorts. You and I are going to be delving into a very contentious and complicated topic today. By way of background, before we dive in here, so I see a headline in the Independent, which says Trump administration reverses Alaska hunting ban and allows black bear cubs, wolf pups, to be killed in dens. And uh, it's very easy to hate on Trump. Um, I, I do it a lot myself. Uh, but when I read this uh, headline, it made me ask myself the question, is this exactly as it's being portrayed here? Because uh, it, was, it seemed like very much headline grabbing and seems horrendous if you just take it as uh, the, the the black and white print of it on the headlines. So I thought, right, there's one person that I, th- I think might be able to dig into this if she doesn't know already, and that was you. So uh, when I phoned you up, uh, you were like, yeah, I've seen this, I'm, I'm reading about it, and uh, I, I, I don't have all the answers right now. And you've spent the last week finding the answers. <laughs> I had the same reaction that you did, where it was like, okay, like this sounds awful, you know, at no point. Um, and I guess throughout all of this, like at no point am I saying um, that that killing wolf pups and bear cubs in dens should ever be taken lightly. Um, but it was also felt exactly like you said, headline grabbing. It felt like there's some biased bit of reporting in here. And I was like, there was no context. Once I read into these pieces, and it wasn't just the independent, um, it looked it looks as if there was a press release that was written um, and then sent to a bunch of different yeah. places. And then a bunch of different entities have done reporting on this. 
Um, none of them have delved into exactly what piece of policy uh, the Trump administration is reversing or how they're talking about it or what laws into it. And that was like the red flag for me. And so that's where I started on sort of going down the rabbit hole of uh, what exactly of discovering are what this is. <laughs> It was exactly. one of the things I noticed because I read a couple of the the media outlets. So, like Wall Street Journal was the other one, and it keeps mentioning conservationists say conservationists say this without ever mentioning which conservationists they're talking about, which was was a massive red flag to me. It's a sort of generic, all encompassing statement without having to actually quote anybody or put put anybody up in front to to defend this. Yeah, and and I it, there was there was limited like actual names, limited policy referenced, and and just in general, um, you know, and and like you, I think it's easy. I do it often. I criticize a lot of the decisions the Trump administration has made, and so it's really easy to just be like, oh, this is just another terrible thing, and um, it's awful, and and rather than than I think delving into to the nuance of it, and what I ended up finding out um, is is it's a really, really uh, nuanced and many faceted piece of policy. And it comes from a lot of history. Uh, and the fact that it got a lot more of a spotlight than other places that did something very similar because it's Alaska. You know, Alaska is sort of, at least in America, looked at as this quote unquote last frontier, the last wild, you know, and, and it has a little bit of a fantasy land feel to it. And um, a lot of people don't actually know a lot of the regulations that the state has and the things that it wrestles with. Um, and so I, I tried to give it the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, I kind of came away with a, you know, little bit better feeling about it. And, and um, but also, you know, it, we won't really know until we see how it shakes out down the road. <laughs> okay. So I think maybe the place to start is, uh, let's uh, let help me understand what the landscape is in Alaska, because I see national preserves being mentioned. And I know that in the rest of the world, most people will know of the American national parks, but have probably never heard of a national preserve. So because that that kind of gets to the, the starting point for where this legislation is going to be taking place. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and when you look at Alaska, you know, you have federally owned land, you have tribally owned land, and you have state. So, land. tribally owned would, would would tribally owned lands to be reservations in uh, in the other states in North America. It would in other states it would be considered reservations. Alaska is a little different. Okay. Um, Alaska doesn't technically have reservations. They have, and this came about in 1971. It's called the Alaskan uh, Native Claims Settlement Act, and. This act was a, a large-scale sort of land designation bill in a lot of ways. It actually did help designate some of the refuges and preserves, but it also uh, designated and gave land to tribal corporations. So unlike, uh, unlike a lot of the lower 48, the way that land's managed in Alaska by the tribes is like a sort of corporation approach. Um, and, and so it's got a little different feel than like what you would look like in a, a reservation that came from a treaty. Um, which is both good and bad. <laughs> um, and so you have all this like different layers of, of land management to start with in Alaska. Now, the other thing to know here is that Alaska has two different sets of hunting regulations. 
Um, they have hunting regulations that the state sets that are for sort of your average non-resident or resident of Alaska that is of non-indigenous background. Um, now, the other side of that, you have that's what's called subsistence hunting regulations. And this is for folks that are that are of indigenous background. And I don't necessarily know how they qualify that with their system up there. But Since recording this, to, Jess got back to me on the details here. And as I understand it from her, for subsistence hunting, you don't have to be of indigenous descent. You can also claim subsistence hunting rights based on the remoteness of where you live in Alaska. Oh, but- the, the point is, is that most people who are residents in Alaska can say hunt moose for two weeks out of the year. Under the subsistence regulation, you may be able to hunt moose five months out of the year. So there's a very big difference in that. And a lot of the subsistence hunting is uh, what you would call like traditional hunting practices. And some of those are a little harder to swallow with the current day, what we call ethical fair chase approach because subsistence hunting is everything about food. And um, at some point the area gets a little gray on like, am I going to fill my freezer or am I going to use, and and can I do that by using the most effective hunting method, which sometimes is a little hard to swallow for yeah, people. Which, <laughs> which 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 around which around the world in terms of uh, if you look at different indigenous populations around the world, it is solely about that. There is no recreation or inverted commas sporting aspect to it. This is about survival. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and, you know, I guess this gets at the first little part of this headline is that some of the subsistence hunting practices in Alaska involve hunting bears in dens. Um, It's easier to get to them. It's, it's, you know, it's by default. It's, you know, if you know where a den is, you know where a bear is, and it's um, a little easier to get to them in that sense. Now, I'm not making an argument for this in any way, shape, or form, but what I'm trying to explain is that this is coming from somewhere, um, and it's coming from many different places. So subsistence hunting um, oftentimes in Alaska allows the killing of black bear um, and denning denning black bears. Uh, Mm Now, And we should say, sorry to interrupt you just before you carry on, is that black bears are legally hunted in many states in North America. Uh, yes, exactly, and and a lot of these articles have gone to talk. So this on, is just the like the the phase of their life cycle that's really in question here. Well, and and it's true, and 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 I think like this is where the reporting gets a little weird because they go on to talk about sport hunters luring bears with grease donut baits, which like <laughs> that whole sentence is problematic in the sense of like by calling them sport hunters and luring bears and the language that's used it's already just setting a negative connotation. Um, but in the state of Wyoming, where I live, um, you can hunt bears over baits. Um, it also goes on to talk about being able to hunt bears with dogs in Alaska. Um, and when you look at the state regulations, like this is not new. You've been able to hunt bears over baits in Alaska. That's not a new thing. You have been able to hunt bears with dogs in Alaska. Again, not a new thing. Um, and the, the reality is, is that Alaska has so much land between most roads that honestly hunting bears with dogs is um, an exercise in futility in most cases. There are some people that do it. It is a very small amount of the population. It is not a large take in the bear population by dogs. Um, 
And so when you're looking at all of these and they're talking about all of this as, as something that's new that you can do. And the reason that they're reporting on that is that um, they're talking about being able to hunt on a national preserve or a wildlife refuge. Now, when you go back and you look at the federal law that is instigating, it's, I think it's like the National Wildlife Refuge System Preservation Act or something along those lines. Part of this, these refuges, these preserves, hunting has always been an option. It is written in this law that hunting, if it is found to be conducive with the creation of that refuge, hunting can be allowed. And you have to do an analysis, um, a land analysis, to make sure that it is conducive to that. So, like, for example, if you were to have, like, a polar bear national wildlife refuge, likely hunting of polar bears in the middle of that refuge is not going to be conducive to the point of the refuge. But if you have a refuge that's basically protecting habitat and a larger ecosystem, and it's not a species-specific thing, hunting very easily follow, falls within that management. So all of these preserves and refuges have this caveat that you may hunt on them. You have to do it with the analysis. Um, these refuges, because they're relatively, the preserves are have been expanded, they're relatively new in the grand scheme of like land designations, haven't ever had hunting on them because no one's done it. No one's expanded hunting to that. So this is not a rollback. This is not a ban. All this was is going, hey, let's look at the real, like how realistic it is to allow hunting on some of these refuges and pres preserves. Um, if they found out that it was conducive, they expanded hunting into that. Now, the story behind this is that once the federal government says you can hunt here, the federal government then relinquishes all uh, sort of ownership over the hunting regulations. And the hunting regulations are then given to the state to figure out. At the federal level, it's a yes or no. And if it's a yes, then the actual detail of those regulations is handed over to the state. Uh, and in this case, the exactly. state of Alaska. Exactly. Um, and so then you look at how the state of Alaska is handling regulations. And that's when you get into there are subsistence hunting. And then there is the actual state like hunting regulations. And they're two very different things. So if you look at um, like the talk of killing bear cubs, that's following, that's falling under the subsistence hunting regulations, not the main state regulations. The wolf cubs, on the other hand, and, and this is like at no point, um, like has Alaska ever been like, we're going to let hunters hunt wolf puppies. That has not happened ever. Okay. <laughs> um, the thing behind that is because, because that, the because the headline the headlines here is you imagine you know hunters coming out of towns and villages on a weekend expedition to go and club wolf puppies. That, exactly. That's the, that's the the feeling you get from reading these articles. Yes, and that's that's like where my brain went. Wait, what? No, this is, doesn't feel right. Um, now the nuance of this is that, and I think it was two thousand eight or nine, um, Alaska did hire hire people. Um, they were hunting experts. They were paid by the state. That was their entire job to go in and take the wolf population down because it was a immediate pushback to a deep, deep dip in their ungulate population. 
Um, okay. Now I'm the so person. So prey species for things like wolves and bears. Yes, and so the most effective way to limit a population of wolves is to go kill the denning mothers and puppies. It's just it's the quickest way to just like nip it in the butt. It sounds awful. I would never want. We, we to do it with foxes do it. here. But we it, do it with foxes here. And it, and it, and it's exactly how that works. Um, so it's never been a hunter. It's never been like a quote unquote sport hunter that's done that. It's been paid by the state, and it's been in um, in reaction to a deep need in the ungulate population. Now I'm the first person to jump on the bandwagon of like saying, listen, like predator hunting is not a long term solution in the case of ungulate populations. Um, it's habitat. So like predator hunting can boost an ungulate population in very specific scenarios, um, but it's not long-term unless you keep up the eradication and it's just not possible. It can't be a sport hunting thing. It would have to be like a paid hit team that spends 12 hours a day doing that all day. So the better solution there is then to make habitat better. But in a short-term instance, when you're like needing a reaction right now, um, doing a one-time thing like that is is something that science and manage uh, managers have like relied on it's a tool um so you're looking at this like many levels of of land management so you have national or federal tribal state and then you have two levels of uh hunting regulations and the subsistence hunting and the the sort of general hunter resident non-resident hunters um, and they're all being referenced as like one thing, and they're talking about a hunting ban, which is there's never been a Alaska hunting ban in the sense of like they've never banned it in wildlife refuges. They've just never considered it. <laughs> um, okay. And then the other part. So, there, of it, so this wasn't a reversal. No, it's not a rollback. It can, should never be called a rollback. What it is is an expansion. And, and, you know, there's, there's been some confusion because national wildlife refuges and preserves are under a different set of management than, say, a national monument. Now, here's where I think things got convoluted is recently um, Trump did roll back protections on a national monument for commercial fishing. Um, yes, I saw that. The, the national monument policy like like what the point of national monuments doesn't include hunting it's not a thing um like it's not in the policy and and maybe we can hunt in some but it, it was not the point of designating a national monument was to have places for hunting a refuge and a preserve actually written in the policy has this caveat for hunting so they're managed totally differently they're entirely different sets of bills and policy levels um and they i think folks that are writing a lot of these are getting these two things confused. Um, and so you have this, like it, there was a rollback. It, it, what Trump did is considered a rollback on the national monument. Um, what the administration has done on the national preserves and the refuge should be called an expansion. Um, and, and here's, here's where the thing is, is, is the, the, the rules around, black bear hunting and wolf hunting, um, they're state level. So this is not a Trump administration thing. It's not a Trump administration problem. And if people have a problem with it, they have to take it to the state of Alaska. Um, and they have to go through the, through the 
appropriate uh, passages to get it in the state of Alaska. It's Trump has nothing to do with hunting bears and wolves. <laughs> that that is that is not the impression you get from the headline or the article. No, and or and, any of the articles. I haven't seen one at all that has come close to the conversation we've even had to this point. It's and and that was like you know as soon as I read this and and. Um, you know, as you get through these articles, like even I was going like, God, like, I'm like really sick of hunters being talked like this. And I'm really sick of us taking like the fall for like biased reporting. Um, and not that we haven't earned that reputation in many ways. Um, but I wish that like, as the reporting happened, that it was a little less incendiary because this felt like clickbait. All of them did. Um, and, and rather than like delving into the real policy, cause there are, I mean, you know, maybe we, it's a whole different thing to talk about not allowing subsistence hunting, um, because of our cultural ethics, uh, than it is to talk about allowing like killing bear cubs in the typical sort of general hunter's mind. Um, it's a two different, entirely different conversations. Now they also start referencing, um, killing caribou by motorboat. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this. Um, And another one, this was another thing where like people are getting their wires crossed. Um, Recently, in the last 18 months, there was a Supreme Court case um, about caribou hunting with motorboats. It has nothing to do with Trump, nothing to do with National Wildlife Refuges, nothing to do with any of that. It was a Supreme Court case. Uh, A hunter used a motorboat to access his hunting grounds within a national park um, and shot a, shot a caribou. Uh, part of that is, uh, and, and it went all the way to Supreme Court because he got in trouble for it, but he claimed that water is owned by the state, not by the park. So it's not federal. So was the, the, was the access the issue here? It was the access was the issue. Okay. And the Supreme Court actually ruled in favor um, with the state. And, and ruled in favor of, of that water is owned by the state um, in this instance. And so, you know, he can use his motorboat to get to a place to hunt caribou. Um, the other side of that is there are subsistence hunters. I think it's called onion portage. I may have that name incorrect, but um, there are subsistence hunters that for a long time have been using canoes um, to, to, go up to caribou who are swimming this portage because it's a place that they can count and can just, you know, we always talk about like, if you're hungry, the quickest, easiest way to get food is the way that you're going to want to do it. And for them taking these canoes and grabbing onto the antler of a caribou and spearing it or slitting its throat or however it was, it was a quick death for the caribou. They got to get to it easily and then they would just drag it to shore. So there is hunting by boat in the subsistence regs because it's something that has been culturally done for far longer than we've been in Alaska. <laughs> um, and so as all this like wires got crossed and it was like someone looked at this and went, what's the worst case scenario and what's the worst sounding thing I can draw from all of this policy and put it in a press release and put it out? And nobody's done the work to be like, hey, this feels a little off. So it appears to me that a lot of the, that with maybe without realizing it, the attack on this 
change, which, as you say, is an expansion and not a reversal of any legislation that was put in place. It's just uh, basically enacting on the on, on the wording that already existed. Any attacks on that is actually an attack on uh, established indigenous rights more than anything else. I mean, yes. And, and um, you know, when you look at, and it's not all of it, but but you look at kind of our history with the uh, Alaskan Native Claims Settlement Act, a lot of the land that we gave to the tribes, we gave them in checkerboard form. Yeah, gave back yeah. <laughs> land that was theirs anyway. Yeah. Gave back. We gave back in checkerboard form. So we we didn't even just give like large tracts of land. We were like, here, let's mm-hmm. make this as hard as possible. Um, oh man, which was which is you know kind of a, a history we're all used to hearing and talking about, especially mm-hmm. now. Um, but but makes it so management across anything that's checkerboard, whether it's tribal and federal or tribal and state or tribal and private, um, is hard. Like checkerboards in Wyoming are like, when we're dealing with migration of mule deer going 150 miles, a checkerboard in Wyoming, um, figuring out how to protect something like a migration on a checkerboard is mind blowing. You have to get so many people at the same table and it's almost impossible. Is this because of private land ownership? Um, yeah, I mean private land, and then even the federal and state, because federal will have different sets of management scenarios on it than the state will. Um, and you have to get everyone to agree. And you have to get everyone to agree. You have to get the state to agree with the federal to agree with the tribal to agree with the private landowners. And um, then on top of that, you put things like hunting regulations. So, like, what kind of hunting can you do where and when? Um, and you add the level of the fact that there's two different what, where, and when sets of regulations for Alaska, it just becomes a like management nightmare. So this expansion is simplifying, honestly, a lot of it. And it's also opening up some like historically culturally significant hunting grounds to subsistence hunters. Um, and you know, I, I, Sometimes things that I say surprise me, but this isn't one of those nefarious Trump things. This was not a bad, I came away from this going, I don't think this is a bad thing. Um, and, and again, like the, the ethics and the ethos of hunting, and this is where it gets sticky is, is we like to really drive home ethics and we talk about fair chase and we talk about all of that. And, and it's because many of us in this culture have the luxury to enact fair chase um, in the sense of like, or what we call fair chase. It's, it's how we construct it. Um, and I would argue that even with our set of rules around fair chase, many hunters don't offer the respect that the animal is deserved. That being said, when you have the subsistence hunting, when your lifestyle and your food and your children's meals depend on you killing a caribou or a bear or whatever it is, um, oftentimes the respect is there for the animal in a much bigger place than I've ever seen in what I would call the sport hunting world. And, um, while we may sort of look sideways at killing bears and dens or things like that, um, it's, I don't really think it's our place to, to weigh judgment on an ethos that we don't understand. Yeah. It's, it, it makes me think of, and it's, it's so many blurred and gray lines here. Mm-hmm. We are, I'd, I'd say, 
most people are pretty comfortable with Inuit hunters herding reindeer. And oh, yet, absolutely. yeah, and, and yet, really, what at what point is that not okay? It's like the, it's like, at what point do you define that you're not comfortable with the, the, the indigenous practices of the, the way that they obtain meat and protein from that wild resource? It's like the, the bald man paradox. If you've got a bald guy or a woman who has one single hair on their head, are they still bald? Well, most people would probably say they're still bald. If they have 10 single strands of hair, are they still bald? Well, most people probably think they're bald. At what point is that bald person not a bald person anymore? So at what point do we say, do we define what is okay and what is not okay when we're talking about uh, subsistence living and using wild resources to feed yourself caveated by the fact that all of this is looked down on from the top-level management from um, the state, I assume in this case, who are looking at populations in all of these different areas and still governing what can and can't be taken. And I imagine if they found one year that a certain population, for whatever reason, had dipped beyond what they were expecting, they probably wouldn't allow it to be hunted that year or possibly the year after. And, and, that, and that's exactly correct in the sense of that, like their management decisions are flexible because it's built that way. That's why it's, well, that's why man, like state, excuse me, that is why animals are managed by the state, not by federal government, because the state can be flexible and reactionary to things. Um, and, you know, it, I guess my argument here is like, if people truly have an issue with hunting bears and dens and wolf cubs, um, even in the very limited, very nuanced um, and incredibly rare scenarios that they are allowed to take it to the state, take it to the game managers and have the issue there um, because blowing this up and, and disparaging Trump for something that he actually doesn't have any um, real sway over uh, is, is just you're, you're wasting emotional energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 I can see. I can, yeah. There's been a lot of emotional energy spent by uh, everyone around the world, and, and particularly in North America in recent weeks. Uh, <laughs> that I think if we can save emotional energy and use our time and resources where they're going to make a difference, I think that is definitely wise. Uh, and it, and it just strikes it. It strikes me that this one of the thing that makes this conversation so intriguing to me is that we continually talk about reinstating uh, indigenous rights of, of people in their local communities and creating systems that are, are much more sustainable, uh, where we can live more in harmony with the, the land that we exist upon. And this seems like that to me. This expansion of the, the regulation seems exactly all those things I've just listed, and yet it has been viewed incredibly negatively. And I wonder whether the only reason that it has been viewed in that manner, apart from maybe disingenuous reporting or poor journalism, and looking, like you say, for looking for clicks on articles, is because of the understandable moral outrage 
at this the, the very concept of killing anything actually that is in its juvenile state, but particularly very cute, fluffy little bears and 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 wolves for that matter, which are a very controversial subject anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I, I would add too that um, you know if we are looking for nefarious intent in this, and the one way that I could I could see this is that we're opening up hunting on these places um, while simultaneously absolutely destroying the the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge with with you know opening that to oil and gas drilling and things like that. So we're we're there may be an element of like, well, we gave you hunting over here in these couple few refuges, but then we entirely destroyed all of the calving grounds of the porcupine caribou herd or um so there's like that element of like, you know, we're opening some of these refuges to oil and gas drilling. We're, we're ruining habitat in many of these places on top of the whole climate change uh, discussion and argument, um, which, which is what the Arctic is feeling. You know, we don't necessarily feel it as much down here and for us in the lower 48 of the states, um, but, but the Arctic feels it. And um, there, there's a larger discussion here and like we may be expanding hunting in these small places, but, but the habitat that we're destroying, um, if, if someone truly wants to have outrage over, over insensitive, uh, animal treatment is the habitat destruction. Hunting has, you know, very little impact population level wise. Um, but habitat destruction, um, is what is causing the dip in a lot of these ungulate populations, which is causing the state of Alaska to have to hunt wolf puppies. <laughs> it's, a very complex situation, which I am incredibly grateful that you have, because I, I know I know that it's taken you days to get to the bottom of this and a lot of phone calls. Uh, this wasn't easy, was it? This wasn't an easy task. <laughs> no, that, that I that I that I put on your doorstep <laughs> after a phone call and then had to apologize for the rabbit hole that you went down. I, I was really happy about it, though. I think I needed um, this. This iter- reiterates a lot of things about you know, I, I've been on this pedestal about talking about language and how it affects policy and how it affects cultural, uh, cultural perception of things. And, uh, especially as it pertains to hunting. And this was just example a of like problematic language, um, and, and sort of disingenuous reporting that has fed into a image that we've painted of this, you know, great white hunter that, um, is an incredibly shallow image and and it doesn't ask us to have any kind of respect or or reciprocity or relationship with our wildlife um and and we have a really hard time i think communicating that jesse thank you so much for putting the time and effort to bring this story to all our listeners i'm incredibly grateful to you and uh, I'm looking forward to being able to come back out to the States at some point so that you and I can hunt together because it's something we haven't done yet. Oh, I would love that. And I'm, I'm looking. Well, you've got loads. Of, I can come on one of the many. You told me before we started recording how many tags you've just bagged this year. So maybe I can come with a camera on one of the many hunts that you're going to be doing this year. Please do. The, the, the invitation is always open and I'll try and find my way to Scotland at some point. It's on my list. So you are more than welcome. Well, thank you. Um, this was a really amazing rabbit hole for me to actually go into. And I, I came out of this uh, feeling a little bit better about the world. 